Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall, Episode 5, Colonel Burr. For the past few episodes, we've taken a step back and considered the broader social and political scene in New York in the 1780s. This episode, however, marks something of a turning point as we start a series of episodes on Aaron Burr, the man who more than anyone else was responsible for turning the Tammany Society from a politically neutral social club into the most potent political organization in New York City. Burr is, of course, up there among a handful of the most controversial and romanticized figures in all of American history. Among the founding generation, only his one-time commanding officer, Benedict Arnold, occupies a similar position in the public imagination. A few moments from Burr's long life have crossed over from the narrow confines of historical analysis into popular culture. The alleged efforts to steal the election of 1800 from Thomas Jefferson, a murky conspiracy in the southwest in Mexico, which would result in his sensational treason trial, and, most famous of all, was the 1804 duel in which Burr killed his great political foe, Alexander Hamilton. These events have been the subject of heated discussion for more than 200 years, not just in dry historical accounts, but in songs, plays, poems, novels, movies, and musicals. Many of these date to Burr's own lifetime, he was always a figure of fascination who inspired admiration and hatred in equal measure. He is fundamentally unlucky in his choice of enemies. At various times, Burr counted George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and of course Hamilton among his enemies and rivals. If history is written by the victors, then it's no surprise that Burr's reputation has suffered through the centuries. However, I hope these next few episodes also show a somewhat different side of Aaron Burr. Of course, I don't mean to deny the more sensational aspects of his career and character. It will always remain shocking to me that a sitting vice president of the United States shot and killed a prominent political rival. Still, Burr was among the most innovative and tactically brilliant politicians of his era, these skills explain his remarkable rise on the early republic's national scene. Most of Burr's great contemporaries were fundamentally products of the revolution and its immediate aftermath. Washington was the iconic military hero. Adams and Jefferson laid the political and intellectual groundwork for independence. Madison and Hamilton, who were closer to Burr in age, were among the clo- driving forces in drafting and ratifying the Constitution. Burr could not claim any of these advantages. Born in 1756, he was too young to participate in the debates leading up to the Revolution. As we'll see in this episode, his wartime record was honorable and courageous. However, he could hardly claim to be one of America's leading military men, and he regularly found himself at odds with Washington and the commander-in-chief's inner circle. Later, Burr was almost entirely silent during the debates surrounding the Constitution. Despite these facts, Burr was still able to emerge as the nation's third vice president, 
and the election of 1800, he found himself within a hair's breadth of the presidency itself. He achieved these feats through a remarkable grasp of political strategy. Burr's intellectual prowess should not be dismissed. Future Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin referred to Burr as, quote, the best head of the age. He generally kept an admirably open mind. He was among the few founders who could be considered a feminist, and he took many women serious as his intellectual equals. However, despite these intellectual accomplishments, he understood that, in a democratic system, political power would not be won through high-minded ideals alone. Supporters had to be identified, cultivated, and organized. Money had to be raised, sometimes in very large quantities. And the general public had to be wooed, maybe through coldly transactional promises. Organizations like the Tammany Society were, as we'll see, crucial for achieving these ends. For many of Burr's contemporaries, this approach was rather tawdry. They worried that demagogues would turn their Republican experiment into a mobocracy. For Burr, however, this was just politics, plain and simple. In this regard, he comes down to us as a strikingly modern figure. Okay, with that introduction out of the way, let's get down to business. For the remainder of this episode, we'll take a look at Burr's early life and his activities during the Revolutionary War. Aaron Burr Jr. was born on February 6, 1756, in Newark, New Jersey. Though in later life he would earn a reputation as something of a bon vivant and Lothario, Burr's family background was among upright Puritans who were leaders of the mid-18th century's Great Awakening. His father, Aaron Burr Sr., was a prominent Presbyterian minister and a founder of the College of New Jersey. In 1748, Burr Sr. became the second president of the college, and he organized its permanent relocation to the town of Princeton, giving the university the, the name it bears today. He was also responsible for constructing Nassau Hall, still the most famous building on Princeton's campus. Burr's mother, Esther, came from even more prominent evangelical stock. Her father was the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the most influential theologian and preacher in the, all of the American colonies. Burr's early tr childhood was marked by a series of horrific tragedies. His father died suddenly in 1757. A smallpox outbreak in the spring of 1758 claimed the lives of Aaron's mother and grandfather, who had moved to Princeton to serve as the college's new pre president. Burr's maternal grandmother died of dysentery that October. An orphan at the age of two, young Aaron and his sister Sally were primarily raised by their uncle Timothy Edwards, a prosperous lawyer. Uh, uncle Timothy oversaw the boy's education, and it quickly became clear that he was a bright and energetic child. It was no surprise that Aaron had his heart set on enrolling in the College of New Jersey. In a sign of youthful self-confidence, he first applied at the age of 11 and requested admission as a junior. This was a bit much for the trustees, even for the son of a former college president. After two more years of intense study, Burr was admitted as a sophomore at the age of 13. 
While at Princeton, Burr came out of his shell a bit and emerged as a popular and intellectually curious student. Many of his classmates would remain lifelong friends and political allies. When he graduated in 1772, Burr delivered a well-received commencement address titled Building Castles in the Air. Uh, This was a fitting theme in light of his subsequent political adventures, and perhaps this gives us a glimpse into the young man's ambitions. Like uh, so many of us, Burr drifted a bit in his post-college years, uncertain of what he would do with the rest of his life. Naturally, he thought about following his family's tradition and joining the clergy. However, Burr had started to drift away from the stern, puritanical religion of his father and grandfather. Though he always held to his Christian faith, Burr was temperamentally opposed to any doctrines that he found overly constraining or dogmatic. In years to come, this would become a hallmark of his political thinking. Instead, by 1774, uh, Burr decided to pursue a career in the law, and he began studying under his brother-in-law, Tapping Reeve, founder of the Litchfield Law School in northwestern Connecticut. Burr's post-collegiate career deliberations were suddenly put on hold with the events of Lexington and Concord in 1775. Now age 19, Burr was a young man with a strong sense of adventure and moral purpose. He was immediately drawn to the revolutionary cause, and he enlisted in the Continental Army. For the next few years, Burr served with distinction as America's struggle for independence. Eventually rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel, he earned a reputation as a brave and quick-thinking officer, The men who served under him generally regarded Burr as a diligent, maybe even strict, though ultimately fair commander, who placed a particular emphasis on organization and loyalty. Clearly, the lessons of military life would stick with Aaron Burr as he began his political career in later years. Along with these positive traits, there were some early signs of an extreme sensitivity bordering on touchiness. Throughout the war, Burr complained bitterly that he was not promoted quickly enough. To be sure, these types of complaints were hardly unique to Burr. Promotion in the Continental Army was notoriously chaotic and rife with favoritism. Still, Burr took this situation as a personal slight, and he bitterly resented those who he thought were holding him back. Throughout his career, we'll see a sharp tendency to bristle whenever he felt that he was not getting the respect that was his due. In many cases, this would lead him to bud heads with powerful foes. Now, I won't give you a blow-by-blow account of Burr's wartime experiences. That would take a while. Instead, let's highlight just a few key moments which had a particular significance on his later life and career. Burr got his first taste of military action when he volunteered to join the American invasion of Canada in the fall of 1775. A significant American force under the command of General Richard Montgomery was set to enter Canada from upstate New York. The plan also called for a second detachment, led by Colonel Benedict Arnold, to invade Canada through the wilds of northern Maine. This force would join Montgomery outside Quebec City, the most significant British stronghold in the territory. 
The Arnold Expedition, which would cross some 350 miles of unforgiving terrain along the Kennebec River, was a bold and dangerous mission. Among the Americans, inevitable comparisons were drawn to Hannibal's crossing of the Alps. This clearly appealed to Aaron Burr, whose education was steeped in the classics. Though friends and relatives worried that this expedition would strain his sickly constitution, Burr enthusiastically signed on to join Arnold. The invasion did not go as planned. By the time they reached Quebec, after six weeks of marching, nearly a third of the thousand-man force was gone, either through death or desertion. Disease ran rampant as the men trekked through swampy land. Those who survived were on the brink of starvation as supplies ran dangerously low. Despite these trials, Burr made a positive impression on his commanding officer. In a letter to General Montgomery, Colonel Arnold described Burr as, quote, a young man of much life and activity who has acted with great spirit and re resolution on our fatiguing march. I'd like to take a second and note this remarkable interaction between two of the most controversial or infamous figures in American history. In some ways, Aaron Burr and Benedict Arnold were strikingly similar figures. They were both courageous and bold and sharply intelligent. They almost always made a powerful impression on those around them. Yet, they were also deeply proud men who were acutely attuned to any perceived slights or injustices. In both cases, this sensitivity would help set them down their path towards uh, infamy. Anyhow, uh, by early December, Arnold's small force was joined by General Montgomery, who was able to provide some much-needed food and clothing, and the combined American force made preparations to lay siege to Quebec City. However, their position remained precarious, with the weather worsening by the day as the harsh Canadian winter began to set in. Montgomery and Arnold realized that they could not afford to stand pat. On December 30th, with a snowstorm pounding down on the plains of Abraham, the Americans launched a desperate attack on the British fortifications. The action was a total disaster. Nearly half of the American forces were either killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. Among the wounded was Benedict Arnold, who received a bullet in the leg. Most dramatically, General Montgomery was shot and killed while leading his men towards the city walls. The Irish-born general became one of the earliest martyrs in American military history. Though the rump American forces lingered outside Quebec for a few more months, their hopes of taking the city were dashed. The American invasion of Canada had finished in total failure. Still, in years to come, this campaign would play a central role in Burr's efforts at self-promotion and reputation building. Colonel Burr, as he was generally known even once he'd served as both a senator and vice president, regularly pointed to his actions in Quebec as evidence of his personal courage and patriotism. Unsurprisingly, a few exciting flourishes were added along the way. Burr and his allies were fond of telling how he had donned a priest's cassock and made use of his fluent French to blend in with the local populations while carrying messages between the various American commanders. 
While Burr was indeed a courier for Arnold and Montgomery, there is no evidence that his actions were quite so picturesque. Above all, Burr tied himself to the memory of the fallen hero, General Montgomery. Stories circulated for years that showed Burr putting himself in great personal danger to recover the dead general's body. According to one account, more than 30 years later, quote, Burr returned back alone and attempted, amidst a shower of musketry, to bring on his shoulder the body of Montgomery. But the general being a large man and Burr small, and the snow deep prevented him. End quote. We'll never know the exact truth about Burr's actions with uh, General Montgomery's body, but clearly they all tried to show Burr in a positive light. With Burr's military reputation thus improved, he left Canada and reported to New York City, which had emerged as the war's primary theater in 1776, following the British evacuation of Boston. Once there, Burr was placed on the staff of General Israel Putnam, a hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill. An earthy and avuncular New Englander, Putnam took an immediate shine to Burr and welcomed him into his family. While in New York, Burr participated in the daring operation in which 12,000 American troops were evacuated across the East River in the middle of the night. He He earned particular praise for the role he played in guiding the retreating army up the island of Manhattan and along the Bloomingdale Road. By some accounts, Burr has been credited by helping to lead some 5,000 men to safety and away from capture by the British. In the years that followed, Burr served with distinction across New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. However, despite his success, Burr's wartime experience was tinged with a sense of disappointment. He was continually put out by what he considered the slow pace of his advancement up the army's ranks. I've already said that Burr was unfortunate in the caliber of his political enemies. The same could be said about his wartime friends. Burr was never able to find a dependable and powerful patron who could advocate for his promotion. Montgomery, of course, had died in the snows of Canada. By the later stages in the war... Benedict Arnold's support may have carried some weight in the British Army, but it was no use for an American. Even General Putnam saw his reputation slide after he took the blame for a series of unsuccessful operations in the Hudson Valley. Most important of all, Burr was always an outsider with George Washington and his close-knit staff. Throughout the war, Washington tended to surround himself with a set of trusted young officers, The most famous of these were Alexander Hamilton and the Marquis de Lafayette. By now, it has become something of a commonplace to note that these young men played the role of surrogate sons for the childless Washington. Indeed, the great general was intensely loyal to his favorites. He ensured that they enjoyed a smooth and rapid path to promotion up the ranks of the Continental Army. From the outset, however... Burr was unable to forge any kind of intimate relationship with his commander-in-chief. He found Washington to be cold, stiff, and generally resistant to his charms. When Burr first joined the army in 1775, he brought letters of recommendation from prominent family friends, including John Hancock, in the hopes that these would help him secure an officer's commission. 
Washington failed to give Burr any favorable treatment. The truth was that Washington, who had only recently been named the leader of the American forces, likely had bigger things on his mind than a 19-year-old who was boasting about his connections. Still, Burr took it as a personal slight. Things were not improved when, a few years later, Washington caught Burr peeking at some confidential papers on the general's desk. Burr acknowledged that he received, quote, a terrific reproof from the general. A fellow officer added that Burr later, quote, broke out in a furious tirade of curses and maledictions, in which, though he did not spare the general, he did not spare himself from bitter reproach. When Burr finally did receive his promotion to lieutenant colonel, he could not resist writing a sniffy letter to Washington. He was, quote, Nevertheless, sir, constrained to observe that the late date of my appointment subjects me to the command of many who are younger in the service and junior officers in the last campaign. End quote. Further tensions arose between Burr and Washington's circle when the younger man wrote a letter in support of General Charles Lee. One of the most senior commanders in the Continental Army, Lee was arrested for failing to act decisively at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse in 1778. Lee was charged with his failure to follow orders and disrespect for his commander-in-chief. Lee had an acerbic personality, and he was known for making sardonic comments about Washington's competence. Unfortunately, Burr's letter, in support of Lee, no longer exists. Still, we can assume that his personal antipathy for Washington played some part in his decision to support General Lee. By 1779, Burr had had enough. He had suffered a serious heat stroke the previous summer. The lingering effects of this illness seemed to have sapped his strength for several months. In light of this physical condition, coupled with his ongoing frustrations with the high command, Burr decided that it was time to resign his commission. Though the Battle of Yorktown was still some two and a half years in the future, Aaron Burr's war was finished. A civilian again at the age of 23, Burr decided to settle in New York and pick up his legal studies. After apprenticing with experienced lawyers, Burr was admitted to the bar in 1782. He lived in Albany for a time, but made his way down the Hudson following the British departure from New York City in 1783. From now on, Burr would hang his shingle at an office on Wall Street. Around the same time, his life underwent another dramatic change. Aaron Burr first met Theodosia Prevost in 1777. Ten years his senior and already married to a British officer stationed in the Caribbean, she was certainly an unlikely match for the Continental soldier. Despite her ties to the British, however, Prevost was an elegant and engaging host to American officers at her home in northern New Jersey. Burr and Prevost clearly made a meaningful connection. For years they engaged in a warm and intellectual correspondence. Theodosia was particularly fond of the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and wrote that his Emile should serve as the guide for any parents hoping to educate their child as, quote, a happy, respectable member of society, firm, pleasing support to their declining life. 
Burr clearly took Prévost as his intellectual equal. He once wrote that her comments on Voltaire had, quote, more good sense than all the strictures I have seen upon his works put together, end quote. In later years, she would introduce him to the works of Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, as we said before, Burr was probably the only founding father who could be considered a feminist by any stretch of the imagination. In late 1781, Theodosia received word that her husband had died in Jamaica from yellow fever. She and Aaron wed the following year. A daughter, also named Theodosia, was born in 1785. The Burrs would see to it that she was educated according to the precepts of Rousseau's Emile. Now settled in New York City, Burr's legal practice met with immediate success. The departure of prominent Tories following the British defeat created an opening at the bar for ambitious young lawyers, and Burr took full advantage. He earned a reputation as a fine courtroom speaker. In the words of one commentator, he was, quote, acute, quick, terse, polished, sententious, and sometimes sarcastic in his forensic discussions. He seemed to disdain illustrations and expansion and confined himself with stringency to the point in the debate. End quote. Many of Burr's early cases concerned Governor George Clinton's anti-Tory legislation, which dispossessed wealthy loyalists from their estates. As Hamilton put it, these laws created a, quote, harvest for lawyers. In general, Burr and Hamilton found themselves on opposing sides in these cases. While Hamilton emerged as a vocal supporter of reconciliation with former Tories, Burr usually represented patriots seeking to claim their estates. To Burr, this dispossession was a legitimate form of reparations, necessary to rebuild the city's battered economy after years of war and British occupation. In 1784, propelled by his legal success, Burr first tipped his toes into electoral politics by winning a seat in the state assembly. At this early date, it is uh, difficult to discern Burr's exact political leanings. Given his stance in the anti-Tory cases, it is no surprise that Burr had the backing of New York's Whig faction, the more radical group on New York's political scene who were allied with George Clinton. However, once in office, Burr took steps that alienated the Whigs' base among New York City's radical artisans. Most notably, he vocally opposed a bill which would have allowed these workers to incorporate as the city's wealthier merchants had already done. Burr also supported legislation for the immediate abolition of slavery in New York, and he opposed bills which would have restricted the right of free blacks to vote and ban interracial marriage. Like so much else at this stage in his career, Burr's views on slavery remain somewhat opaque. Though willing to sponsor this anti-slavery legislation, he was himself a slave owner. To be fair, this was unfortunately not an uncommon position. Most of the leaders of the New York Society for promoting the manumission of slaves, including John Jay and George Clinton, were themselves slaveholders. In 1785, Burr's single term in the Assembly came to an end, and he resumed his legal practice. As a result of this return to private life, 
Burr was largely absent from the volatile debates on the new constitution, which was drafted in 1787. Many of his Whig colleagues, including Governor Clinton, were vocal anti-federalists who led the opposition to the Constitution at the Poughkeepsie Ratifying Convention in 1788. Burr, however, failed to make any public comment on the proposed Constitution. Throughout this fevered national debate, Burr failed to give a single speech or publish a single pamphlet stating his point of view. He pointedly declined to serve when friends put his name forward as a delegate to the Poughkeepsie Convention. Burr's only statement came in a letter written to a friend at the very end of this process. By this time, ten other states had already ratified, ensuring that the new constitution would go into effect regardless of New York's decision. So, at this point, he wrote, quote, I think it became both politic and necessary that we should adopt it. This was more a statement of political reality than any dearly held belief. Burr's silence on the single most important issue of the day was striking for such an ambitious young man. Fair or not, in later years, this would only serve to further the image put forward by his opponents of Burr as an opportunist, always hedging his bets and refusing to stick his neck out for any cause beyond his own advancement. All right, I think that's enough for now. Um, Next time, we'll continue our story and look at Burr's dramatic rise on the national political scene during the 1790s. In the meantime, please do follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, or feel free to shoot me an email at TammanyHallPodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. And hey, while you're at it, why not rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts? That would be great. All right, well, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.